welcome to the King of Games 98! On this episode, it's Metal Gear Solid versus Green Fandango! Welcome back everyone to another episode of the King of Games 1998, a tournament in which we are ruthless in letting the games released in 1998 each other to death. It's a game eat game world in here, but it's all for a good cause, namely finding out which game released in 1998 is the fittest of them all. As usual, there will be three of us judging this game based on four criteria, our personal experience, the critical and sales reception, whether the game had a lasting legacy or whether it was genre-defining, and ultimately, how do these games fare against each other head-to-head. So my name is Ozzy, and I will be steering the discussion today, but will also be a juror as well. And I am very excited about this episode because it has a bit of an old-world flavor, as my two other jurors are in continental Europe. Hailing from the United Kingdom, but residing in the Netherlands, we have Jeff Ivets. Hello, gentlemen. Hey. And we are excited to bring back from the land of beer, sausage, and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. It is her dear friend, Dennis Schrillinger. Or if you go by his nom de plume, Srilly Vanilli. How are you, Srilly? Hello, this is Sleepy Herman the Creepy German. How are you guys? <laughs> I'm doing much better now that I hear you. <laughs> so we're actually doing this episode at a very unusual time. Usually we record it in the morning's uh, Eastern time. So that would be New York time. So that would be the afternoon for Australia and for Jeff. But right now we're actually recording quite late at night and... Uh, Dennis is a little bit sleep deprived, so he <laughs> might be a little bit rambly. He might say things that are not so appropriate. Um, so let's just give him a pass. He has a young kid, doesn't let him sleep. It's not getting much sleep lately, but hopefully that gives this episode a very different type of energy. I always like this episodes recorded later in the day because they always feel just a t- little bit different. And uh, on this episode, yeah. we are still in the round of eight and we have Grim Fandango going up against Metal Gear Solid. And boy, am I glad to be on this episode. Um, (laughs) Just to recap, on our previous episode, Metal Gear Solid took down Banjo-Kazooie, although it was touch and go for a moment there as Arnie took forever to decide the tie-breaking vote. (laughs) And then we have Green Fandango. Almost as if out of spite, Green Fandango, if you recall, previously faced StarCraft. And you would think that the game that an entire country went crazy over, that had its own TV channels, that is still being played competitively to this day, and that was one of the best examples of the strategy genre, would have prevailed, but no. That was not the case, as Arnie cast the vote in favor of Grim Fandango in what was probably the biggest upset of the round of 16 and busting every bracket with it. Harsh words were said, severe punishments were meted out, and to this day, I only speak with Arnie through my co-hosts. But perhaps this episode can go some way into making things right. In other words, all goal here is to bring balance to the Force. So, with that said, let us just have a quick summary of each game. Metal Gear Solid, everyone knows it. It is a stealth game written and directed by the man and the legend Hideo Kojima that was released for the PlayStation in North America on October 21, 1998. Remember, we're just using the North American dates here. I know Europe, 
but you usually release very late, so we can't take you into account. This would be the Battle of 1999 otherwise. <laughs> and Grim Fandango, on the other hand, is an adventure game written and directed by Tim Schafer, he of Double Fine Productions fame, that was released just nine days after Metal Gear Solid on October 30th, 1998. And Metal Gear Solid was published by Konami and eventually became a multi-million selling franchise. And Green Fandango was released by LucasArts in the waiting days of the adventure game genre and never received the sequel. So that makes for a very interesting matchup, which uh, should be very interesting. And to get us started, let us start with you, Dennis. What is your experience with Green Fandango? Um, Green Fandango I played, I think, pretty early after release because me as a kid was a huge point-and-click adventure fan. I started off my gaming career on the Commodore 64 and um, this led to me playing games like Maniac Mansion and Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. So um, those games really shaped me and my gaming taste. And then came games like Indiana Jones and um, Day of the Tentacle, Monkey Island, of course. And I was just obsessed with the uh, with the intricate stories those games would convey because other games, conventional games, so to say, just had like an one one quick juxtaposition: you're a space guy shooting aliens or whatever. And those games were like movies that was incredible and loved it. And I also loved the humor; they really shaped my personal kind of humor. So um, for me, it was just natural to play Grim Fandango pretty much right away. And did you remember looking forward to this game or did you know that it was going to release before it came out? Uh, to be quite frank, I really can't recall if I was like super looking forward to it because the hype that is being generated for upcoming game releases as it is nowadays through social media and internet, um, that of course was not the case for back in the day. We had magazines in our day and age we have <laughs> magazines <laughs> uh, on, on printed paper so all those youngsters if you don't know what it is printed paper. nanny <laughs> nanny nanny um we were we were killing trees one magazine at a time back in those days and we didn't care Fuck the hippies, yes. <laughs> <That's great>. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was crazy. I really loved that actually. I really that was a thing that I was looking forward to each month receiving my subscription favorite video game uh, magazine and reading it front to back every single word, um minus FIFA or any other sports related games. But I was really into that and I uh, really sat sorry for that, everyone. Um I really sat down and listened uh, read all the articles and and soaked in all the information but i i i probably read through those about grim fandango and then was was going to my or maybe i was just i had a um there i am already rambling about starting three sentences in a row and never finishing any um sorry <laughs> um <clears throat> i had this one video game store that i was a regular at and he was basically my main source of uh, new release titles. When I dropped into the store uh, wanting to re rent a video game for the weekend, he would say, hey, Dennis, uh, this game is going to come out soon. Do you want to pre-order it or something like that? And I think he probably um, made me aware of it. Oh, nice. And so did you actually play it contemporaneously when it came out? Uh, yes, but I didn't finish it. 
Okay, but you, did you get quite far or was it just that you got stuck on one of the puzzles or uh, one of the sections? I think I got stuck and I really, I probably had other games that were more interesting to me at that time. I mean, it was 1998 and there were some major games coming out that year. So I think yeah, it was yeah. just uh, something l like along the lines of, uh, hey, I got stuck in this puzzle and I'm just not um, eager enough to play this, uh, to, to go through this puzzle. I'm just going to play something else because Ocarina of Time or whatever, <laughs> or Resident Absolutely. Evil 2 <laughs> came out. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you, Jeff, what was your experience with Grim Fandango? Um, so yeah, my experience with Grim, Grim Fandango started about a week ago. <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really short, short lived uh, love affair between me and Grim. Um, Back in 98, I think, surely he, he just mentioned one of the games close to my heart, Resident Evil 2. Same. I was spending most of the late 90s playing PlayStation. I knew about Grim Fandango. Um, I think, yeah, I think all of us were fully into, I guess, uh, LucasArts games. I mean, I don't want to repeat what, what, what surely said, but yeah, uh, Mon like Monkey Island and The Day of the Tentacle were two of my favorite games in the 90s on the PC. Yeah. Um, But at that time, I, around 97, 98 was when I was really diverting towards console gaming. So adventure games were starting to take or click and put a point and click or whatever you want to call them. They were starting to take a bit of a back seat. So I knew about Grim Fandango also most likely because of magazines. Um, but I hadn't really started, I didn't stayed it, uh, played it until the re-release, the remaster. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think playing that, I did the first... I guess you would say first two to three puzzles. And it reminded me why I stepped away from those adventure games all those years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it just, it, I really struggled to connect with it, but I have watched like the long plays just to get more of a sense of where it goes. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's been my experience with, uh, with Grim Fandango. Yeah, they do require quite a bit of patience nowadays. And that's, yep. and that's a patience that I don't think we necessarily, have nowadays um, back in the day maybe yep. since you had to get the most out of your game and there was less diversity i would say out there and options in terms of games you kind of just had to stick through with it and the benefit of time you know kind of has not been kind to grim fandango because or many of the adventure games for that sake i mean when you really think about the fact that lucas arts games were supposed to be you know the the common sense ones the ones that had puzzles that actually did not, you know, feel ridiculous. Whereas Sierra Online were the ones that had that traditional kind of puzzle, you know, logic, adventure game logic. And, you know, when you go back to Grim Fandango, you kind of don't even realize that because it's still quite obtuse. Um, the, yeah, the puzzles absolutely. are still kind of, you know, require a lot of just kind of clicking and going and, um, and the, also the other thing is just the movement. It feels so slow compared to what we're used to nowadays. Um, but going back to not having played it earlier, I mean, one of the issues that you have with a game like Grim Fandango is that it was confined to its kind of Windows 98 release. Um, and since it did not have a re-release until much later, it's kind of like the same with a game like uh, the Blade Runner Westwood game, where the only way you could play it was if you actually you know, had a Windows XP PC or something like that. But if you were running Windows 7, um, you know, or Windows 10, it's kind of hard to, you know, be able to make that game work without some sort of coding savviness. 
Um, so it's a good thing that the re-release brought it to a new audience. And just to kind of give you my experience, I don't have that much of an experience with Grim Fandango. I know more about it because of Tim Schafer. Uh, I know about it, you know, because once I read about Psychonauts, I looked back and saw that, you know, he had also done a game like Grim Fandango or Full Throttle. And so I love the aesthetics of it. I love the Day of the Dead uh, look of the whole thing. Um, but I never actually played it again, as with Jeff, until the remaster. So I'm coming into this with a little bit of fresh eyes. Uh, but in terms of Metal Gear Solid, Dennis, I'm pretty sure that you have some experience with it. Um, what is your personal relationship with Metal Gear Solid? I'm not sure. I don't think that I have played Metal Gear Solid right away after its release. I know exactly when I bought it myself, but I believe it was, it was still in the PlayStation era, like when, when PlayStation was still around in the stores. It was not like I, I bought it later on. But, um, I only got my PlayStation. I didn't, I didn't get my PlayStation before 1999. But, uh, anyways, I was a Nintendo 64 kid. So I got that right away when, when it came out. I saved a lot of money and, and bought the console right away and only got my PlayStation secondhand from a school buddy. Um, like maybe two years afterwards. So that would be, yeah, that might have been 1997 or 1998. But then again, I didn't buy Metal Gear Solid right away. I bought it in a kind of double pack with the, um, with those extra missions that came out later. Exactly. Oh, yeah, the the uh, VR missions. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but I, what, I, what did you think of it at the time? I think, um, I think I did play it before I bought it because I, I got it, borrow, borrowed it from a friend or something. I was blown away by it because I have never played a game with, with this amount of tension building, espionage, spy, science fiction setting, and with voice acting the way that they had. Um, along with all those, uh, codec messages and, and communications that you had in between, um, the cutscenes, the graphics were a little bit wishy-washy, but they were kind of like the, the style. So you didn't really had, uh, have facial, uh, details, but that really was just the, the visual style. So that made it all the more mysterious and, and intriguing, uh, intriguing. So, um, Metal Gear Solid blew me away knocked me out of my socks and i loved it from from the first to the last second it was it was incredible so even looking back right now at it uh, realizing that the german dubbing is horrendous it's really it? it's a piece of work really um and i have never played it uh, in the original english uh, dubbing so i can't i can't even even compare but uh, you, you have never played it in the original English? No, because I only played the German game. Okay. And I never gotten Ouch. back to it to listen to the uh, English uh, version. So this but is interesting. What was so bad about the dubbing without going into too much of a digression? It was just they had really bad voice actors and they had, it sounds like they had virtually no direction at all. So like, <laughs> okay. like there was no, no one telling <laughs> them uh, when to pronounce something in a, in a specific way. So they probably didn't, didn't get the information. Hey, look, in, in the next take that we're going to record, uh, you are being held at gunpoint or you just saw that, that chick's ass, you know, in that one stupid <laughs> scene where the, the 
camera zooms in. Um, so I don't know. It, they, they just, they just, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad because they kind of got everything from, from the context, I guess. But it's still with more direction and with better voice actors, it, it would have, it would have been even more massive, but it was good enough for everyone to love it. So. I think that well, it's, it's, it's a testament to the story and the gameplay that even with that bad dub, yeah. um, it still was appreciated in Germany. Yes, exactly. Uh, I did not know this before, but I also, you know, I'm connecting one of the two together in terms of you mentioned that back in the day, games did not have that much of a story. It's just, you know, you had to fight space aliens or something like that. And that was the reason why, you know, you like the adventure genre. But then, you know, you get to 1998 and you're getting this similar you know, the in-depth story from what would be considered in the past an action game. And so you could kind of technically see where things were going here, that the benefit of the adventure and the positives of the adventure game genre were being implemented into other genres and therefore kind of making it obsolete. So I don't know if I'm, you know, outside of my norm here with this, but it seems like one and the two go together. Um, so Jeff, what was your experience with Metal Gear Solid? I'm pretty sure that you're a huge fan. Yeah, I am. I am. And that's where I've got to probably get it out there earlier than, uh, than, than towards the end when I suddenly reveal that I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and vote, and, and, and revelation. Vote Fandango. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was hooked as soon as I got the demo disc from the uh, PlayStation magazine. As soon as I had that, uh, I don't think it left my console for a good week. Um, I just replayed that over and over and over again. I got absolutely hopelessly addicted to it. And the Je- hype for the release was incredible. Je- Jeff, yeah. how, how far did the demo go into the game? Up to which point? Well, you see, this is... So I've had some conversations with people where where lots of people have got very different recollections of this. So in my in my mind... The demo that I played ended when you when you f- did the first real infiltration when you were crawling to get into the base. Yes, I that's that's, that's also it, that's also what ends. I recall. Yeah, because but, but then no, I, I mean, believe the- I believe I might have played the demo beforehand too. Now that you mention it, yeah, yeah. Well, my my experience is similar to Jeff. I mean, I I also played the demo, but my recollection is you actually make it into uh the bunker if i recall correctly yeah yeah um and that was it but um yeah i mean i played that demo over and over and over again until i eventually got it many years later but i was so in love with it that it didn't matter that i was playing the same demo again and again um but it's it's definitely one of my favorite games of all times i think that you know i'm not being biased in the sense that you know i have an unhealthy degree of bias with respect to uh, Metal Gear Solid. It's just, it's a really excellent game that has stood the test of time quite well. Um, and so I still hold it as probably the best Metal Gear Solid game, you know, in the series. Uh, maybe only compared to Metal Gear Solid 3, that's the only one that I think kind of really gives it a run for its money. But um, it's one of those experiences that everything makes sense. Everything that's added in there, it's in for the benefit of the story for the benefit of the narrative and for the benefit of improving the gameplay it's very streamlined there's not any fluff really um there is you know even the coded conversations they don't tend to overstay their welcome they tend to just go for whatever amount of time and it makes you feel like you know you're part of this operation rather than 
you know, what you had in, in Metal Gear Solid 2, where you start discussing King Kong, you know, like almost before the end of the the game. So I, I think that it's a very tight experience. And what people don't remember is that it's actually quite a short experience. I mean, you could probably beat Metal Gear Solid in about six hours at most. Um, it's not a very long game, particularly if you know what you're doing. But it's still just such a, a terrific, you know, terrific, you know, in its pacing it has very good pacing. It never really feels like it drags on. Um, and I think that that's really a testament to how well they were all firing on their cylinders when they were creating this game. Um, I don't think that they expected that they would, this would be as big as it was, but I think that lack of expectation allowed them to be a little bit more restrained, but also adventurous, you know, where it needed. So I, yeah, I, I think this is a phenomenal, phenomenal game. Um, Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, what has been the reception to Metal Gear Solid in Europe, if you recall? Because, of course, you know, the last episode, we kind of spoke about it from the U.S. side in a way. Um, okay, yeah. But is it as well esteemed? Is it held in high, as high a regard as it is here in the States? Well, I, th- I think the the thing that says the most for me uh, was I remember back in the day, the ni- official Nintendo magazine were obviously very worried about how good Metal Gear Solid was. They were so worried about it that they were publishing letters and making statements about how bad Metal Gear Solid is as a game. That's no way. Childish. That's very childish. And oh, the the the, Ninte- the official Nintendo magazine was one of the in the UK was one of the most childish publications. <laughs> it was they the uh, PlayStation was called the Grey Station. And the Dreamcast was called the Dream Pants. <laughs> absolutely dreadful. I mean, yeah, if you were still on board the Nintendo train after that, then you were just a masochist. <laughs> <laughs> or five. So there was all there was always that like ch- there's like childish rivalry, but I think that I think that says a lot because when your direct competitor, when they're like having to really kind of say bad things about a game which is clearly getting massive critical acclaim and success, you know that they know it's a good game. Um, and it's obviously only until they got twin twin snakes did uh, Nintendo fanboys suddenly say, "Hey, hey, hey, we've got Metal Gear Solid, oh, isn't it amazing?" Yeah, kind of yeah. Uh, kind of thing. And, so, and- so for me, that 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 said a lot within the gaming world. But it was definitely one of those games in my classroom where the guys and the girls maybe, but the guys especially who are on the periphery of video games, like they they played FIFA basically they were still interested in Metal Gear Solid as well as like your typical gamer. So it definitely bridged a lot of people to kind of go, look, video games aren't just the latest copy of FIFA. There's also like pretty much a cinema or movie experience. And that pulled in quite a lot of people. It didn't mean that they enjoyed it or they could play it because it's still a bit of a difficult game to play if you're not adapt to video games. But I think that it brought in such a universal uh, amount of, you know, different types of people um towards the playstation that it really uh i really really cemented in the europe in europe anyway that it was going to be like something utterly phenomenal yeah and and the other thing is that we all know that the playstation was huge in europe um it, it mm. europe you know as a market did not really have the same brand loyalty that the us and japan had to nintendo because no, before no. that they had the the master system 
they loved the Mega Drive, um, and the Mega Drive was, you know, as much a competitor in Europe as any sure. other, you know, challenger that the Nintendo could have taken on. And then, you know, the Nintendo 64 goes head to head with the PlayStation and the PlayStation just eats its lunch. Um, and so I imagine that that means that Metal Gear Solid was kind of held, you know, along with other games like Wipeout, you know, uh, as the game that shows that this is the console for adults. This is the console, you know, that we Europeans like in a sense. Um, you know, there wasn't the same sense of, you know, the, the market crash, the video game market crash in 1984 in the, you know, in, in Europe. And so it's not this kind of mythological perspective of Nintendo saved the industry. It's just like, oh yeah, Nintendo. I mean, I, I played with, you know, the super, you know, NES or whatever. Um, but it wasn't yep. like I, yep. you know, I need, you know, to defend this console because it's intertwined with my identity as a gamer. Um, and so <laughs> that's, that's why I think probably Metal Gear Solid was in a very good position to kind of really become one of the prominent, uh, figures, um, in why, why PlayStation was, you know, preferred. Uh, and Dennis, you talked about it a little bit, but, you know, in Germany, is Metal Gear Solid still, you know, perceived as, you know, as a great game? Uh, is it still talked about in a sense? Um, you mean the franchise or the original game? Uh, both the original game and the franchise. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it left a, a huge mark in the gaming industry and it also left a, a pretty remarkable mark in the, um, well, in the movie business, I, I, I would say, or in, in, in the rest of the media business because People have been picking up on Hideo Kojima's name after Metal Gear Solid's release. He was like the first after Shigeru Miyamoto, of course, I would, I would say, at least from my perspective, as a huge Nintendo fanboy, uh, and Sega hater. Don't judge me <laughs> because I learned the better when I was older. Um, no, but, um, Metal Gear Solid, yeah. Hideo Kojima, he really, his name was in not everybody's mouths on, on everybody's names, but, um, minds, but he was really being remembered as, as fondly as the game title itself. Because usually you, you yeah. would have the, you, you would have a movie title. And if it was a, a big and very prominent and, and, you know, popular director, then of course everybody would remember. Yeah. Of course that's, that's from, um, uh, Steven Spielberg and that's from, I don't know who, but in games, it was, it just wasn't like that. Well, and I, th and I think that's, it's one of the games that actually started that trend of trying to really make video game experiences as filmic as possible yeah and you know there's a logical endpoint to that which we saw with kind of like the uncharted franchise etc which you get to a point where you say well up to what point is this so filmic that i'm kind of no longer playing the game you know and we saw that mm -hmm. with like quick time events we saw that with you know kind of those long cutscenes that would play out that made you feel like you're doing something but at the same time, you're just kind of steering things forward without really having any agency. I think yeah. the difference is that Metal Gear Solid actually had a very tight gameplay component. And when you really think about it, Metal Gear Solid, what it is, it's, it's literally almost like Pac-Man, you know, um, if you really want to trace <laughs> the lineage, you know, you're kind of playing around 
the cone of vision and you're trying to make your way through the path in order to get to where you want to go. Um, so there's an actual gameplay component and it throws in just a, enough variation, you know, with the different uh, shaft grenades or the cameras or, um, you know, lasers, etc. All those things make it feel like, oh, you're actually the super, you know, spy uh, infiltrating this base in Alaska. Um, and so the filmic component is not only because of, let's say, the cinematography itself, which it's one of the first games that actually had like cutscenes that you could say were cinematographic. Um, yeah. But also the thematic component of it just felt like all the things that the gameplay did made it feel like you're playing a movie. Um, so I don't know if you think that that's the case, Jeff. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking it's it's a game that blended um, it, it blends gameplay and cinematic seamlessly. I think that even though I mean, Dennis mentioned earlier about you don't see the definition on people's faces, but it's the continuity is so strong that you very quickly look past that because it's all it's all quite believable. Um, and it, it never breaks in, you never have that moment where you're taken out of the reality that the game's created. I mean, if you take other games that, um, at the time were, where even Yanamco and Squaresofts were all thinking, okay, how great of an FMV can we make? But when you look back at it now, actually a lot of those videos break that sense of immersion and, and of reality that the game world is set in. And actually when you go back to Metal Gear Solid, it's so seamless it really makes you feel like you're you're really involved in that in that world um and i think that with metal gear solid it has that right blend of gameplay versus cinematic so we're saying it's a very simple title compared to its contemporaries um i played a, i recently completed a video game where the final blow of the 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 main villain so this was a monster boy the uh on on the switch mm -hmm. The final blow was done by an anime cinematic. And it's like, well, actually, I want to perform the final blow because I'm playing the game. I don't need a movie to deal the final blow on the on the main enemy. And Metal Gear Solid, you that you as Snake were doing all the actions. Yes, there's cutscenes, but you're still doing everything. The gameplay was really strong and consistent. So it's it's definitely a game where the 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 amount of immersion is really considered. And I think that creates such a great memorable experience in the gamer that you can replay it, replay it, replay it, but you're always getting a, an exciting experience from it. Yeah. And there's also another element to this, which is that circa 1998 um, anime was having a moment. This was when anime was kind of really blowing up and Ooh, yeah, Metal yeah. Gear Solid is really a game that is very influenced by Hideo Kojima's uh taste and interest in anime um, and you can <laughs> mm. kind of see Otacon being his stand-in you know you know he's kind of a very oh, yeah. you know anime typical stereotypical character even though he's much more than that uh, but he's kind of Kojima's representation you know within the game and before this you had you know anime like Ghost in the Shell you had a uh, Gogo 13 you had Cowboy Bebop and this game kind of really fit within that time frame, you know, mm -hmm. and just a year later, well, not even a year later, just a few months later, we would see the Matrix release, which was another another movie that was very influenced by anime. And so it was kind of very fitting of the time. It's a game that kind of 
really was a product of the influences that were kind of steeped in that time. Um, so I think in that sense, we look back on that fondly because it represents the particular time period in which there was a particular style, you know, to anime and to the games and movies influenced by anime, um, which I don't think it's the same anymore. It's There are influences, but they're not the same sort of influences. Um, but I don't want to take away too much, you know, from Grim Fandango. So let's jump over to Grim Fandango a little bit without having too much backlash. Uh, Srili, what do you think makes Grim Fandango special and why do you think people remember it so fondly? Actually, I'm, I'm not really sure if people do remember it that fondly. I, I don't hear many people talk about that game a lot. There are many other adventures, point-and-click adventures that people talk about all the time, like Monkey Island. But what I would say to that is that um, the setting was something entirely different. It didn't look like the typical film noir, but um, it really had all the other aspects. And uh, that was unique. It may not have been the first game to, to do that, but it was certainly very unique to the point-and-click adventure genre and uh, to the way stories were told back in the day. So I think that was the most memorable thing. And you played as a skeleton in a suit, so that was cool. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and I like the idea of... Yes, you are a reaper, but you're also kind of a bureaucrat. Um, so I like that juxtaposition of, you know, you're supposed to be in mythology, this very spectral, um, powerful being. Um, and the game kind of plays with that with the introduction where you kind of see him approach and he's, you know, in the shadows and big. And then, you know, he go, walks in, he takes off his, his jacket and he like goes off, you know, his stilts. And he's just like this guy that's kind of trying to sell, you know, packages for traveling to the afterlife. Um, so he's basically an insurance salesman. Uh, I, I yep. really like that humor. You know, it's, it's something that it's very quirky. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a game that has its very own identity. And we kind of saw its aesthetic. Um, in other, you know, media, you know, later on, much later on, you know, you saw it in like the Pixar movie Coco. Um, you saw it in, right. um, yeah, Guacamele, um, the same day of the dead influence. And I think this was one of the very first, you know, pieces of media that actually did this, this kind of day of the dead aesthetic. And it's now kind of become, I'm not going to say a, a cliche, but a lot of, you know, different uh, creators have used it as their aesthetic choice. So I think that's probably one of the most uh, intriguing parts and one of the most uh, alluring parts of Grim Fandango. But what do you think, Jeff? What do you think makes this game special in the eyes of many? Yeah, so I'm the same as Dennis a bit. It's not a game I hear of from, from many people talking. I think a lot of people of our generation... It was a game that you knew about. Um, it definitely feels like a game that was towards the end of the adventure of the point and click, I guess, if you want to call that an era. Yeah, it kind of uh, like killed the it. The 80s and 90s. Yeah, it, it felt like a bit of a final, not a final nail, but a bit of a swan song, right? And maybe yeah. the, the, the last attempt to rise in this genre before everybody realized, okay, no one's interested in this anymore. Well, I mean, I, yeah, exactly. I have a little bit of a different experience. I think that Grim Fandango, you know, growing up, it was always spoken about as one of the very best examples and one of the very best adventure games up there with Monkey Island. 
And I actually think that that has changed in recent years, particularly due to the remaster. I think that the remaster allowed a lot of people to play it and not just mm. go with what they had been told. Um, and also with the benefit of time. And I think that has led to a kind of reassessment of Grim Fandango. Uh, and nowadays, you can pretty much get it anywhere for any system. You can play it on iOS. Um, you can play it on, on Android. And I think that has led to a reassessment and a kind of revisionist history of saying, well, you know, maybe Monkey Island really was the better game all along. Maybe Full Throttle really was the you know better game all along, or Day of the Tentacle, whatever the case may be. But yeah, I remember Grim Fandango being hailed as one of the best adventure games ever made, um, at least based on my readings of you know Electronic Gaming Monthly, uh, Game Pro, well, Game Pro. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that it was held in very high esteem, um, and I still think that a lot of people find it you know, very nostalgic. Um, and mm-hmm. I really think it comes down to the aesthetic. I really think that it comes down to the story. Yep. You know, Tim Schafer's humor is, you know, peerless. I really think that Tim Schafer is one of the most unique voices in the industry. And I really hope that he continues making games. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you know a Tim Schafer game when you play one, when you play Day of the Tentacle or Full Throttle or Monkey Island, you know, because there's a very surreal kind of Python-esque <laughs> uh, humor to it all. Um, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I think you know, but then you get to the point where you ask yourself, if these are all the things that I like about the game, do I actually like playing the game? You know, would I actually mm, just mm. want to watch the damn thing? Um, yeah. And to me, I'm kind of thinking you probably have the better experience if you just watch it. Uh, at least nowadays, because unless you're really fascinated with the idea of breaking your head and trying to figure out these puzzles, which, granted, a lot of people may be, you know, into those sort of puzzles. I, I am not. I don't like kind of trying to figure out that adventure game logic, you know, to it all. And so if what I enjoy is, you know, Grim Fandango, the story, Grim Fandango, the aesthetic, I would rather watch a long play. And I would say perhaps it's even better that this gets turned into a series or something. I would love to watch the Grim Fandango TV series. It would be you know, super interesting and funny. Um, and that's where you get to the question of, is it really good as a game? And we're going to get back to you on that. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, we're going to talk about the critical reception and whether we actually think that Grim Fandango is a good game. So we'll be back. fellas and we are back and we are still doing our best to make sure that we give grim fandango its fair shake um jeff do you think it's a good game if if you like point and click games or adventure games so whatever you want to call them uh i have absolutely no doubt that it's a great game um i was thinking earlier we were talking about uh, the puzzles and the obtuseness of it all uh, and I was thinking, like, would I play it again today? Um, 
so this is where I'm going to have to be brutally honest with myself. I've got a, I've got a mirror in front of me, and I'm just looking at myself, going, right. I've got it's about about time I tell some home truths to my to my to my reflection. And you also have to shave. <laughs> and I've, yeah, only 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 one person on the podcast can have a beard at a time. So I guess I'm going to have to shave it off for a dentist Hello. to uh, remain. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically, in the 90s, my brain was a bit, probably a bit more flexible. Uh, it could think a little bit more obscurely. And some of the puzzles I could probably figure out by a lot of trial and error and especially like Monkey Island, where it's just the most random stuff you could think of is usually the the answer. Yeah. But playing Grim Fandango, oh, sorry, watching a long play the last <laughs> couple of days, I'm watching some of the puzzles thinking, I would never, ever have thought of that. Like, that's not something I would have done. It would have probably taken me 10 hours to figure that out. And I'm not a stupid guy, but I'm a 35, <laughs> nearly 36-year-old man whose brain is now cemented in place and is no longer able to to think uh, ob- you know, obscurely. I'm very much like, I have a job which is facts, 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 facts. That's how my brain works. And it's just become a fact machine rather than a let's kind of, a, let, let's see if there's ways around a problem, you know, kind of, uh, kind of thinking. So I think if I was to play Grim Fandango or any point and click game, from like scratch again today i think after after an hour i would just yeah my brain would just leave the room and go <laughs> i'm look it's 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 all on you i'm i've got nothing to do with this yeah. um so that that's kind of personal but i i can imagine people who love those games that this is a, a very highly regarded game i can okay. i can see it I think that's my cue, actually. <laughs> if I if I may interject, um, and I I really um, agree with you, Jeff. But I also think because I had the same problem. I had uh, Grim Fandango. I played Grim Fandango. I thought, like, what is this puzzle? Where is this leading? I don't know. I, I don't have any clue how to solve this. And then in the end, you uh, you, you end up checking checking the internet watching a guide or, or you know reading cheats and stuff yeah and 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 going on about that and then once you've done that with the first puzzle that you can't get past then it makes it all the more easier to do it again with another puzzle where you say oh, i don't have time for this i'll just i'll just check the the guide the walkthrough and then you mm-hmm. end up maybe just uh, following the whole guide all the way through just to get on with it and to get over with the game and then it ends up being, or you end up asking yourself the question, would I have rather watched this as a movie? And then today you have the opportunity to watch a long play. Um, but then in my, so in, in Grim Fandango's defense, in my opinion, I mm. think it's, um, it really depends on your personal perception of these kinds of things. If you're really an adventure game nerd, then you probably get a knack for these things at some point. Once you've beaten a couple of those, then you think, ah, it's probably that. That's so far off. It's probably that. And then it might even end up being that. But I also um, think that Grin Fandango has some of the most um, bizarre solutions for... Um, for puzzles so it just makes it really mm, awkward and slow paced in terms of uh, progression 
Um, other other games from that time, like Monkey Island, Full Throttle, also had a couple weird puzzles that I didn't really that I couldn't wrap my head around. But um, it really depends on how you how you do those. Uh, for example, these days, point-and-click adventures have experienced a renaissance. They are they are back, not in a huge way like back in the day, but they still are back on the radar. And there are new yeah. companies who who produce new, very clever and and uh, intelligent uh, point-and-click adventures, cute ones and very very artsy ones. And I'm all for that. And there are games where I just didn't have to look at a walkthrough. So in the end, to conclude this rant um i think it's just <laughs> it depends on what kind of game designer you are or, or like what kind of puzzle designer you are um and uh how many people you will reach by logic or how many people you will reach by weird trial and error and then make them happy because i think there are less people out there who like weird try and error solutions than people who like logical solutions but then again logic is also subjective so what gives yeah, but it's kind of telling that, you know, eventually the adventure genre eventually ended up becoming what, you know, Telltale ended up doing, which was kind of more of a narrative of a, of a kind of TV show in a sense without a lot of gameplay with not that much, if any, emphasis on the puzzles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do agree with you, Dennis, that there is some sort of adventure, you know, genre that has kind of researched, but it's not mm -hmm. the same one. It's not one that has no. the same issues that we had back in the day. And I think a big part of it is that it has just evolved into something else entirely, what we now call like a walking simulator. I think there's a direct lineage between, you know, the adventure games of yore to those types of games like Firewatch or Dear Esther or What Remains of Edith Finch, you know, games like that that are more story-driven than anything. And I think that's just because if you're going to tell a story and the story is going to be your focus, then why do you feel like you need to add something in order to gamify it if it's not going to really be a positive for the game as a whole? So I think nowadays people are more okay with not you know, implementing that sort of gameplay just to justify the game. Um, whereas back in the day, you kind of still needed to be a game, quote unquote. So I think it's just a very different uh, perspective. But with that said, I mean, the game was well received. It originally received an 84 Metacritic. Um, the re-release uh, accumulated an 80 on Metacritic. You know, in the case of... Um, sales it did you know sold about 500,000 copies by 2012 which was not very good and it was around 50% fewer copies than full throttle so it was very much considered a commercial failure and after this game LucasArts released Escape from Monkey Island but then after that they had three games three adventure games in development and all of them were canceled so effectively mm. this was like the dying gasp of the adventure game genre you know, whereas in the case of Metal Gear Solid, jumping over to the other end, you know, it has a 94 Metacritic. You know, it's generally hailed as one of the best games of all time, you know, between that and Ocarina of Time and very much a contender for, you know, the, the eventual winner of this uh, of this tournament. Um, I don't think that's controversial. And it sold one million units in Japan, five million units in the USA and Europe and that was considering that the sales expectations were quite low at the time. And the interesting part about all this is that both of these games received a remaster or a remake. You know, in Grim Fandango's case, 
you know, is the remaster kind of, particularly because the remaster is essentially the same game, now that it's detached from the times where we have actually been able to look back on what the adventure game genre was um, and what it was not, um, or is it, you know, just proof that the adventure game genre has not aged well and that, you know, it really wasn't, you know, as good as we remembered it? What do you think, Jeff? When we're talking about games that are coming out now, so we, we, we've seen the adventure games, they are being tweaked. They've got, the, as I said, they've got quality of life improvements and they, they're far more accessible than the old LucasArts games were. I think what what I really respect about the remake or the remaster, sorry, of Grim Fandango is it's the exact same game. It looks it's like it's got, it's got better lighting and some better effects. But I saw some complaints when I was researching this. People said there should be a hint system and there should be an autosave. And it's like, dude, if you want a hint system, just go and read a guide and follow the guide. Like, I don't see why people would want a hint system in a game where, you know what, you, you're you getting it. You're going to have to be prepared to use your brain. And it's like, I've had the same sort of thing when it comes to like Dark Souls. People are complaining that it's cheap and that it, they should give you more uh, uh, hints that things are going to happen to you. But it's like, just get better, get good, use your brain, get engaged. So I, I really think that, yep, Grim Fandango or the point and click, though, that 90s era has aged. I don't think it's aged well. But that's coming from a standpoint of I've played majority of those games. If I play them again, I'm just going to blitz through them really quickly because I remember the core puzzles. I like to think anyway. Um, well, Day of the Tentacle, I competed in a couple of hours. So maybe that was a good sign that my, my memory at least is OK. Um, but the yeah the core mechanics of, of Grim Fandango, I think are fine how they are. But in 2020 or 2015, I think it came out. Um, I can see why it, people would think, ah, this isn't as engaging as it was back in the 98. What do you think, Dennis? In terms of, of what a remaster should be doing to a game compared to a remake, which is basically building the exact same game, um, from scratch anew. Right. In a completely new, mm. like, engine, uh, environments look different, maybe different controls, as, for example, in Resident Evil 2, the remake. They did that. Um, but for a remaster, um, I'm basically with, with Jeff on this one. So who needs a, um, a hint system in 2015 or 2020? I don't know, but, you know, there is the internet. If you need a hint, go check that there and if you don't want to um, crack your brain with those puzzles then don't play an adventure game a point and click adventure game um, no matter how difficult or hard to get those are but um, in the end it it's you know they, they improved the, um, the tank controls so you've got regular directional controls that was good graphics look better um, well I, I enjoyed it. I played the remake and I enjoyed it. I still got stuck and I couldn't complete it and I didn't watch <laughs> didn't watch a guide or, or yet or check a guide to, to go on playing. Uh, but that's, you know, on me. Um, so in the end, I think as far as the remaster goes, it's it's well done. And, um, no, and, I, and I think that it's a good remaster. I mean, it, it also includes developer commentary, 
which is something that I wish more games would do. I right. used to remember back in the day when you had DVDs, you know, with extra scenes that, you know, they would give you the commentary track. You could learn so much from that commentary. And I really think that games will benefit from that. And there are just a few that have that. And I think Grim Fandango, you know, if you're going to have a remaster, which is going to be a polished, you know, you know, experience, you know, that brings you the, the same game that you loved, but with, you know, modern, up-to-date conveniences, um, I think, uh, you know, commentary goes a long way into kind of preserving the history of the game itself. So I think in that sense, it's it, it's a very good remaster because it mm. does a lot to kind of preserve its history. Yep. Um, so, you know, going back to Metal Gear Solid, you know, with the release of Death Stranding, we have now seen that Hideo Kojima is not on the pedestal that he used to be as much. I mean, Death Stranding was divisive to say the least um but it, it still received you know good scores but do you think that you know the legacy of metal gear solid has kind of distorted or perception of you know hideo kojima as a games director you know the fact that was that this game was so influential and that it held such a, an important part in our um you know history of of games as a whole do you think that that has distorted a perception of kojima as a games director I don't think that this, uh, this distorted, uh, the way we view, um, Hideo Kojima. Actually, I think the contrary is the case. Um, Metal Gear Solid has basically been closed. It's, it's a book with many a chapter and it has been closed by Kojima and Konami consensually, more or less. Um, not, not, not really, but you know, they, they kind of went split ways and this just was the end for Metal Gear Solid. And, um, Death Stranding is some, uh, something so entirely different. Um, but it breathes the amount of detail and the amount of uniqueness that Hideo Kojima brings to making games, um, that it kind of still carries the, the legacy of of Metal Gear Solid without Metal Gear Solid and everything that Kojima achieved with this franchise, with the series, um, Death Stranding would have never been able to be made. So in, in that regard, um, it didn't distort anything. I think it just, it cemented Hideo Kojima's, um, stand and, uh, his, his position in, in the media world. And, um, people are just, they were, they were like, so excited to see what Death Stranding was going to be. And, and I heard different things, but I heard a lot of good things. And, um, for example, or, or especially I had a lot of unique and very special things. I was afraid that it was going to be just some kind of Metal Gear Solid in a different setting, but it was something absolutely different. And that's what I like about Kojima and that he just moved forward and that he was now free to do whatever he wanted at that point in time and so he's he's really the director that i think the majority of of media nerds see him as what do you think jeff i mean i i've got an opinion on on the the kind of the cult of personality that exists around kojima and it's a really interesting question where 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 metal gear solid kind of falls in into that cult um for sure obviously he worked uh on on games before metal gear solid um basically the metal gear games from the uh 
the previous consoles that, that Konami were working on. And for me, Kojima and Metal Gear Solid are very much an intertwined experience. And I really felt towards the end, Kojima had had enough. Konami had had enough. Obviously, we could probably t- we could probably do a podcast on Konami that would last two hours, and it's all it's all conjecture, you know. It's all I think this, I think that, whatever's going on over in Konami HQ. Um, but what I think has happened is that Konami has now got no reins on him. He can go and go out and create whatever he wants. Um, and I haven't played Death Stranding. I've seen a hell of a lot about it. I'm looking forward to playing it this year so I can have actually have a final opinion on Death Stranding. Um, but I definitely feel that Konami at least always held could hold Kojima to account. And they could say, no matter what, your games need to make money. But you're spending far, far, far too much on this now. Like, you're going a little bit too too far with this we need something that ultimately is gonna is gonna make money so i think the relationship with konami uh, between konami and and hideo is is something that is very ob- obscure and bizarre as it is but i do think that when it comes to the public's image the cult of personality around kojima is so strong that it seems to have a you know a life of its own where he could produce a terrible game but people are still gonna think it's amazing because it's kojima yeah. So I do think I do think that he is protected by Metal Gear. Metal Gear Solid is never going to be considered a bad game and his name is always going to be tied to it and it's exactly the same and Ozzy, I don't want to trigger you here, but it's exactly the same as Miyamoto and Super Mario Bros. <laughs> exactly. When somebody becomes so well known for some or one or two things, it makes it very hard for people to forgive uh, uh, makes it very hard for people to say something bad about them when later they do something bad. Yeah. And that could be seen across all elements of society. Yeah, and, and I don't think that we need to get into this rabbit hole of, of Kojima, but yeah. I, I find that to be a very interesting answer, Jeff, and uh, I, I, you know, I agree with a lot of it um, because we've talked about this outside of the podcast. But, <laughs> um, but I think my, my point here with this question and the way I would answer it is that I think that Metal Gear Solid was just such a, a terrific and well put together experience that it kind of made us think that Kojima was much more of a mastermind and was much better. You know, I, I'm not saying that he's bad. I'm, you know, he's he's really good, but as a game designer, it gave him free reign to do things that were not necessarily great from a gameplay perspective. And it is games like Metal Gear Solid 2 that when you look back on them, they're not that enjoyable. Or Metal Gear Solid 4, which is basically in many ways a movie. Um, And like you said, Jeff, it allowed Kojima to get a pass for a lot of the things. And it just, that's what I mean when I say it distorts your perception of Kojima, because I think that Kojima has not had you know, other than Metal Gear Solid 3, and that game still has flaws, has not had a game like Metal Gear Solid since. But we still hold him in such high esteem. And I think from a gameplay perspective, um, he hasn't produced a type of game that, you know, gameplay trumps the story itself. Um, I think that he has become much more focused in trying to produce a movie than necessarily creating a great game. And I think 
you know, Metal Gear Solid Five was probably the biggest deviation from that because it was so much more gameplay focused. But at the same time, that was also one of the ones that was most divisive with respect to uh, the fan base. But mm-hmm. that's what kind of what I'm getting at. And, and it just kind of goes to say that, you know, the original Metal Gear Solid was an excellent experience and it had such a, a huge shadow over the rest of the industry. Um, but I guess moving on, you know, to Grim Fandango and kind of its legacy, you know, is it telling that despite being considered you know, one of the better or at least, you know, exemplary games of the genre, you know, Grim Fandango still, you know, at the tail end of 1998 could not breathe life into the genre. You know, after this, Tim Schafer went, you know, went to found Double Fine Productions and he created Psychonauts, um, which had the same humor, but it was also more of a game. So, Jeff, I mean, do you think that Grim Fandango just had a losing battle or do you think that, you know, maybe if another different game had come around that maybe the adventure game genre could have survived? Yeah, we've touched upon it a little bit during our conversation here. My 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 feeling is that it was coming to an actual end. I think that this the the industry and this genre was very much relying on one studio or uh, LucasArts to continue producing. Um and without knowing everything going on at LucasArts in the in the late 90s, I can't imagine that it was something that they could continuously pump out these type of titles and i don't think there are many others i mean you, you guys you guys might might know of a few more than i do of from the late 90s um i think gremlin produced normality i think that was one that kind of suddenly springs to mind um but there wasn't there wasn't a lot of other companies or developers who were making these games and i think lucas arts was starting to wane they were starting to go to more more towards the first person and the the the, the kind of the more action games i think um is it dark forces the star wars yeah shooter yeah. They did? Mm-hmm. yeah um so and i think those sort of games i imagine they were seeing okay we love making these point and click adventure games but actually the the, the uh, doom clone is selling five times the amount ah we better uh, we better go where the money is so i do feel like it wasn't a losing battle but i just think tastes were changing um and i think that they were just on their own island a little bit LucasArts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in my case, I think it's a, again, not to be a cop-out, but I think it's a little bit of both. I definitely think that the adventure game genre was on its way out. I don't think that there was a lot that could be done to change it. But let's say that something like Psychonauts would have been released instead of Grim Fandango that focused more on not only implementing the kind of adventure staples, but also moving it forward in a way that was modernized a little bit more. I, I still think that Grim Fandango, even though it was one of the, you know, first, you know, 3D games, you know, 3D adventure games, um, you know, using the Grime engine, which was uh, the, the Grim engine. Uh, I still think that it was a game very stuck to its roots. It was still very formulaic in the kind of adventure genre tropes. And so I think that if you had had something that would have tried to move the the genre forward a little bit more, maybe you could have seen it survive for a little bit longer. But I think that Grim Fandango was still very much stuck in its ways, and it was still very much a game of the times. And um, you know, I'm not gonna put the death of the genre on its on its 
for, uh, on his feet. But no, that's a bit same, harsh, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I think that maybe something else could have been released that could have done a little bit of a better job to prolong its life. Um, just because Grim Fandango was so... I don't want to say the word stale, but just so conventional in the way that it approached the adventure game genre. So, um, all right, let's take a quick break. And once we come back, we're going to have a final say on this uh, two games and how they stack against each other. everybody and we're back and we need to close this thing out um and we've talked about both of these games um and these games have already had their say in the first round so we're not going to drag it out too much longer so i'm going to ask you dennis um if you have to take a look at these games and have to consider which one would you rather play nowadays and how do they compare with each other um which one would you rather play and which one do you think is the more important game I would like to play Grim Fandango to completion because I haven't yet. But Metal Gear Solid is most certainly the more important game. It is way more influential on every, not on every other game, but on the entire industry after its initial release compared to what Grim Fandango did to the uh, industry because Metal Gear Solid was kind of a start of a genre and of a way to produce and convey the whole video game world. Um, And Grim Fandango was, as we all kind of agreed on, more or less the death of the genre. It's really... You know, it's it's difficult because, as I said earlier, LucasArts is the one company that you would have expected the best games to come from. But then again, you had other companies still making point-and-click adventure games uh, after its quote-unquote death of the genre. For example, uh, Broken Sword. That... Um, came out a little later and it continued throughout uh, the next few generations it was it was a silent game not no huge like appearances in in right, sure. the magazines and stuff it was popular and everything but not groundbreaking but it still kept the genre going more or less and it was a good game too um and so so i wouldn't even consider the whole genre to be dead it was just lucas arts buried their own uh, point-and-click adventure journey, so to say, which is sad. But on the other hand, these days you have things like um, Thimbleweed Park, for example, uh, which is a game by Ron Gilbert, the other guy from LucasArts, who was a legendary point-and-click adventure game producer and game designing mastermind along the lines of uh, Tim Schafer, uh, he did Monkey, uh, uh, he did Maniac Mansion and Zack McCracken, and he made Thimbleweed Park, and this is basically, this is a time capsule. It plays just the exact way as those games, Maniac Mansion and Zack McCracken, um, played back in the day. So, he made a hell of a job to, to create a new game 
feeling like you played the game 25 years ago or even like, like 30 years ago almost. So that is, that is incredible. And it's a really, really good game. I love Thimbleweed Park. And, um, that is a, right. that's a better game than Grim Fandango. And it's, it, it didn't need Grim Fandango to, to be created. You know what I, what I mean by that? Yeah, I, I get what you mean. And it's interesting that you find it to be a better game than Grim. You know, it also has the benefit of 25 years of uh, experience. But, but you know, I, I, I have not heard the same degree of reverence towards Thimbleweed Park than I have towards Grim Fandango. So it's it's good to hear that you preferred it. Not necessarily because I think that's a good thing. It's just because, you know, at the very least, you know, it shows that, you know, these experiences can be positive. These experiences can be enjoyable. So what do you think, Jeff? For me, Metal Gear Solid, uh, I prefer to play it any day of the week. I, I, I can't hide that. <laughs> um, it's better than most games on the system. It's better than most games from that generation. It's better than most games from that decade. It's better than most games from that franchise. It's better than most games <laughs> from any PlayStation. It's better than most games ever. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just want to point the uh, I love the irony that we're saying that potentially Grim Fandango marked the, the death of the point and click considering what the content of the game is ah. um, <laughs> that only yeah. just dawned on me an hour and a half later that we were talking about that um, yeah I, 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 I guess for me point and click adventures I absolutely loved playing them in the 90s I absolutely loved it Broken Sword thanks for mentioning Same that that's really so Broken Sword, that first yeah. one, I've, it's, it's still brilliant. I still play it on the iOS. Yeah. It's, it's really exciting. The first one has a brilliant story. Yeah, it really does. Um, and I, yeah, I completely forgot that. So thanks for reminding me that that kind of held the torch for easily yeah. through the first for the first decade of, of this century. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely fantastic series. So yeah, Metal Gear Solid, it has to get the uh, nods from me on, 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 on all marks. It's... Yeah, it's Metal Gear Solid, right? Yeah. Let, let me just put it this way. Um, I have both Metal Gear Solid and Grim Fandango on my PS4. Grim Fandango will stay there unplayed. And if I try it, I will pull it up, you know, try to give it a go and then realize I don't like doing this. Um, I don't want to kind of, you know, bend my head sideways in order to try to figure out whatever they were thinking of, even if it's clever or if it's cute or if it's humorous whereas every time that i put metal gear solid on i will you know not be able to stop myself from playing and that's just that's just how i feel i mean if i were were asked which one do i prefer to play i mean there's just no question about it but when you talk about you know which one had the bigger impact i mean grim fandango feels like a blip you know if that it's just kind of like it came it was very nostalgic for a lot of people. A lot of people enjoyed it. It kind of built the reputation of Tim Schafer together with other games like Full Throttle and Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle. But certainly a big part of Tim Schafer's appeal, you know, in going on to create Double Fine was that he had games like Grim Fandango under his belt. I think that the aesthetic of it is timeless. I think the aesthetic is um, one of the most creative uh, uses of that cultural folkloric uh, Aztec um, you know, look, I think that the music is absolutely fantastic. Peter McConnell did a terrific job in composing a very jazzy, 
um, and noir kind of soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's it's a it, it has a lot of components that are quite excellent, but I think as a game itself, it doesn't really have a lasting impact. I mean, when we're talking about 1998 and some of the very best games came out that year, you know, Grim Fandango may be a very good game in its own right and within the adventure genre, but at the end of the day, it just can't measure up to the massive influence of Metal Gear Solid. And at the end of the day, it's not even about the influence, because if it was just about that, then, you know, this thing would be over quite quickly. It's really that out of the two, it's just a more enjoyable game. It's just the the, the more uh, impactful in terms of its story, in terms of what it does, and in terms of the feel it gives you when you play it. So, yeah, I mean, there's just no question. I think that, you know, Metal Gear Solid demolishes, you know, Grim Fandango in, in this particular matchup. Um, but, you know, that's not to take away from Grim Fandango's qualities. And I think that there are a lot of them. And I think that if if you have the opportunity to, you know, either play it or watch a long play, I think you're going to find yourself enjoying it. Um, so, you know, I think that kind of does it for, you know, Grim Fandango. Um, it it kind of got here on a mulligan. It, it kind of got to this round because, you know, hey, why not? <laughs> Anything could happen. But, you know, it's road stops there. I'm sorry. You know, it's kind of like Netherlands in the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the World Cup. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, it's it's a nice little story. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a reason why you're the underdog. Hey, it did well. It did so, well to get this far. You know, fair play. Fair play. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so with that, that comes uh, to an end. Um, this round, this particular matchup, you know, brings us to an end. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Dennis, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram under my handle, Strilly Vanilli. And if you want to, like, read what I have to say about indie games in the German reviews that I write for Welcome to Last Week, please do so. Uh, Google Translate is a fairly okayish method for non-German speakers to read my articles and Benya's articles, who also has been on the podcast. Um, so Welcome to Last Week would be the main outlet where I talk about indie games. But otherwise, Strilly Vanilli, talk to me. Well, that does it for us. Uh, Jeff, we can find you on Instagram as well, uh, Keyspot Gaming. You can find me at Shadow the Collector with periods in between. Uh, but as uh, a podcast itself, you can find us uh, on the website, regionfreegamers.com. You can find us on Instagram, that's Region Free Gamers Podcast, and also on Twitter, Region Free Gamer without an S. And so with that said, uh, I forgot to mention this, but please make sure, you know, if you like what you hear, Go and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us and it goes a long way toward, you know, keeping us, you know, invested in, in the whole project. Uh, and also, if you can subscribe, you know, download our prior episodes. We have a huge number of them already, you know, way over dozens of episodes. So, and also engage with us. Uh, it was, it's also great to just speak with all of our listeners. So we're really looking forward to that. So that kind of marks another episode of uh, the King of Games 1998. So we will see you again in the semifinals. So thank you, everybody. And I hope uh, you had a great time listening to us. Peace. Thanks for having us.